I cherish my Sleep Number bed, and like all their beds, Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds lets you choose your ideal firmness and support on each side of the bed, your Sleep Number setting. Now with the new responsive air technology, this bed senses your every move and automatically adjusts to you so you stay sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Did you know that many of us fall asleep faster if our feet are gently warm? The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed can even pre-warm each side of the bed, so it's just right for both of you. Does your bed do that? My Sleep Number setting is 90. My Sleep IQ score was 81 last night. It's time you met the bed that does it all, only at a Sleep Number store. Come in now and enjoy introductory savings of $200 to $500 on the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. There are more than 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Call 1-800-390-9100 or visit sleepnumber.com to find the store near you. And be sure to tell them George Norrie sent you. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Lots of things going on in the world of science and space. I mean, what a great time to be alive. Oh, my gosh. You know, I was just thinking about this today, uh, George. Uh, um, I wish I was 30, 40 years younger because the people who are young today are about to see a renaissance in the exploration of space and of the universe. I mean, um, we are about, we're, uh, we're, we're seeing the beginnings of a revolution in the industry of rockets. And it's going to be, I think, as influential in the future of the human race and the culture of the human race, as influential as the computer revolution that took place in the 80s and 90s. Um, it, it, it's, it's a significant thing. I mean, it's not going to be that you'll have desktop computers, I mean, rockets. But the ability and the the number of new companies that are coming along and developing new and cheaper ways to put rockets into orbit and technology for rocket engines and just the, the whole the whole business of using space uh, for a variety of purposes, not just simply to explore and settle the solar system, but also to to do uh, various things that can make money here for people on Earth is going to influence uh, the future, the next century of America, of human uh, endeavors, uh, the United States especially, but the world. And we're seeing it really becoming now, I report on this in Behind the Block all the time, um, and every day practically I'm reporting about either a new rocket company about to do a new test, there's a whole bunch of this mm-hmm. alone, um, or I'm reporting about, uh, you know, not-so-new companies doing spectacular new things, and this is going to be a very exciting time over the next decade or so. What about new propulsion systems, Bob? Do you see anti-gravity popping one day? Well, I don't know. That's that's a that's 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 pushing it. That's going really out. I look at things like uh, there's a really small company called Alka that is developing a. Uh, what they call an aerospike engine. This is something that NASA tried to put together with the X-33 about two decades ago. Um, uh, it's the idea of the aerospike engine uh, nozzle would increase the efficiency of rocket engines significantly, and it has to do with how the atmosphere changes, the density atmosphere changes as the rocket goes uh, higher in elevation as it's firing. And uh, the... the, the uh, the shape of the nozzle, as you use today, is defined by one point in that flight. If you could have the shape of the nozzle change as the rocket's going up, 
you can increase the efficiency of the engine significantly. And the concept of the aerospike is that the atmosphere itself forms half the nozzle shape. The, the jet comes out along a ramp and uh, pushes against the ramp and the atmosphere. And that's half the nozzle literally is the atmosphere changing. As, as its density changes, it changes its shape. This is a concept they've had for decades, but no one's ever done it. Well, there's a small rocket company that's developing a rocket right now. And it's really weird to look at this because the base of the rocket doesn't have a nozzle like you'd imagine it. It looks like it's got a, a sharp knife edge. And they're developing this aerospike engine, and they're going to do tests on it. And if it's successful and the, the engineering makes sense, uh, they will change how rockets fly. They will make it much easier to make rockets reusable because you'll have more yeah. spare fuel. And that will make it more likely that the second stages of rockets could be bring, brought back to Earth and recovered. And once again, you're then getting to a point where rocket ships... You're not talking about first stages. You're talking about rocket ships. The first stage is a ship. You'll start to name them. They'll be used. You'll have people selling used first stages. You know, you want to get a satellite up and you don't have the money, you can buy a used first and maybe a used second stage. The industry is going to change, and that means a wealth of exploration in uh, throughout the solar system. It will open up the solar system, people who want to explore it. It's already beginning to open up to private companies building lunar and planetary missions to explore and do science in space. And they're, do, they're, they're developing the technology because they can get their payloads up cheaper. They have more resources to get them up. And therefore, they can offer to scientists an opportunity to do research in space, and they have money. Uh, and usually they go to NASA, or NASA by, you know, builds it, but now NASA has the opportunity maybe of doing this much cheaper. So I know I don't think in terms of things like anti-gravity, because, yeah, that's maybe so, but that's not right on the cusp. That's not going to be happening in the next decade. But what is happening is you're going to start to see really real spaceships. I mean, real spaceships mm -hmm. right out of science fiction from the 50s flying up and down from the Earth to space and in space real spaceships flying from planet to planet and that's about to happen and over the next two decades it's going to boom and it's going to change the human race it's going to change culture everywhere will private companies need governmental approval in order to launch or go to the moon or do anything like that in space uh, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if your listeners are going to really want me to talk about this. I've been writing op-eds about this in the last six months, actually. But we have a very serious problem have, having to do with the Outer Space Treaty that was signed in the late 60s because of the Cold War. It was basically negotiated by, by the United States and Russia, uh, Soviet Union. And that treaty forbids any nation from claiming territory in space which means that the legal framework that would work is essentially the UN. Well, what that means is that no, the le if you have a private asteroid mining company and you want to land on the moon and start mining a piece of territory, you can't establish your property rights. There's no way to establish your borders. There's no legal framework for doing it. The U.S. can't establish, can't uh, impose its laws on any piece of territory. I mean, because we've been to the moon, nobody else has in terms of with manpower. 
we can't claim the moon is ours. We can't claim it, no, under no condition. And what I say is that uh, that's a mistake. We should allow nations to be able to claim territory, but we should set up, the nation should negotiate a new treaty which allows them to claim territory, but not like the whole moon. So we land on the moon, we don't get to claim the whole You don't moon. get the whole thing. No, but like a homesteading situation, you put in, a, the nation can make a claim. It can hold, let's say, you can have uh, a thousand square uh, 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 uh miles or 500 miles, even 100 miles, you know, just to give the nation a large chunk. And then the nation can decide how it wants to issue, establish law within that territory. And the U.S. would go back and do homesteading, allow private citizens to claim territory, you know, piece, small pieces of property, and then they can make profit on it and you have solid property rights. So you can't claim it. In fact, I have a post on Behind the Black today um, about an article um, – discussing how do we protect the Apollo sites on the moon? How do we preserve them? Well, we can't claim them. We can't declare them historic sites, even though they're important American historical sites. We can't do it because of the Outer Space Treaty. And so the, the people who are talking about this are saying, well, we have to go to the U.N. and write up a new, uh, some kind of preservation situation. Once again, you create those kind of things. You know, what you're going to end up doing is you're not necessarily going to protect those sites, but what you're going to do is restrict the freedoms of the people who eventually will be exploring, settling, the very brave people that will be settling the moon. You'll be telling them, well, you can't do certain things. Well, I, I think that's a mistake. We should try to establish something where there's real uh, profit motive and private rights and individual rights for the settlers that will go to space. And the Outer Space Treaty is an obstacle to that right now. And it's interesting to me that I raised this issue in an op-ed about five months ago, and it's been raised by space people for decades, but no one ever pays attention. I raised this issue in an op-ed, and I was astonished that within in the last three months, this has been coming up repeatedly, uh, and it hadn't been anywhere since I wrote the op-ed. I was actually very surprised. I don't think, I, I just think I, I hit the button on the head just when this discussion was starting to percolate. I mean, Ted Cruz had a series of hearings where they repeatedly discussed the Outer Space Treaty and whether it should be changed or not. And there's a lot of people saying it shouldn't be changed. I think they're just afraid of, of changing things. I think this is an issue. And, you know, from an American perspective, I want American law to be to, to be uh, uh, protecting American companies and individuals that go into space. Because UN, we're going to have the UN do that, and I, I don't trust the UN as far as I can throw that building. And trust me, I can't even, huh. even want to go no, near I, it. I don't blame you. <laughs> We've had six manned moon landings, haven't we? That's correct. Six. Now, let's see, 11, 12, 14, 15, uh, 16 and 15 and 16. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we had six. Yeah. We had, we had 12 guys go to the moon. I mean, you know, and that's, they landed and walked around. So that would be the number. I mean, uh, you're making me, you're embarrassing me because uh, last <laughs> mission, I'm looking in my own encyclopedia on this. I the think, last mission I, was Apollo 17. So there you go. Yeah, 11 to 17. Six. I had a blank for a second. So that's uh, six missions. Because 13 didn't make 13 it. 13 didn't go. And right. they, they went around the moon, just like Apollo 8, but they didn't land. And those, those, that's 12 guys. They saw, I like to joke about this, they, we, you know, because there's a lot of people who say, oh, we've been to the moon, been there, done that, it's, it's old hat. Those six guys saw about as much territory as maybe a cab in New York City, Manhattan, <laughs> in the day. Which means they haven't seen anything. But I bet it was still exciting. For oh, them. well, of course it's My exciting. It's still God. exciting. 
you know what? Because they didn't see a great deal. And they remember, those missions all generally landed near the equator, and they tried to land in relatively safe places, or the flat places, though the later missions took a little bit more dramatic territory. But they really didn't see most of the lunar surface. We don't know anything about the poles. There's never been a landing on the far side of the moon. Uh, the Chinese are going to try to do that later this year. Said some, some say, and I, I know how you feel about this, but no. some say there are structures on the backside of the moon. The same people who say that were saying that the Mesa on Mars, that's just a plain Mesa, was a face, and that wasn't the case, and that's just silliness. Uh, the, the moon, uh, you know, but I will say this. I, I, am, I am extremely skeptical about that kind of stuff, and that's an understatement. But I will say this, and this is just uh, adding to what I just said a moment ago, which is we've seen in close-up, in detail, almost nothing of the lunar surface. So who knows, you know, 2001, they found a monolith once they got there, and they had a sick colony there, and they started to really explore, and boom, they found this thing buried under the ground, and it was alien structure. So you get to the moon, you have the possibility of really exploring and maybe finding something that is not predicted. Um, and so in that case, I, I, all the more reason to go. Uh, you got to get there, you know, uh, I... Uh, I was once at a presentation by uh, Chris uh, Spires, who's, who's in charge uh, of the uh, Opportunity and Spirit Rovers. and I, That's right. I've heard that name. Yeah, and he's ta- he talked at great length about what they were accomplishing. And I raised my hand and I asked, tell me, how, how long would this have taken if a human geologist had been there? And he says, oh, we spent about... This was about no, five, six years ago. So they've only been up there five, six years, those rovers. They weren't supposed to be there 90 days, but they were working already almost a half decade. And he said, oh, well, what we did in the last half decade could have probably been done in an afternoon by a single geologist. So if we're really going to explore these places and see them at great length, we've got to be there ourselves. The, all the rovers and the landers and the orbiters are doing is doing our scouting to prayer. Sure. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.